I'm Elizabeth Ray. I'm Alistair Stevens. And Tom Cruise is Billy in Endless Love. Welcome to The Last Star in Hollywood. This week, Franco Zeffirelli's 1981 melodrama Endless Love, starring Brooke Shields, Martin Hewitt, and of course Tom Cruise in a very brief, vanishingly small role in this film. <laughs> if you haven't listened yet to our introductory episode in which we discuss the purpose, the where's and the why's of this podcast, you can find it over at laststarpod.com. We are going to watch all of Tom Cruise's films in chronological sequence, so we have to start here. Elizabeth, had you seen Endless Love before? Definitely had you seen not. the 2014 remake? Definitely not. No, I hadn't even heard of it. I had heard of the song, of course, but sure. no, I didn't know anything about this movie coming in. I all, honestly didn't know that it was going to be melodrama. So that was kind of fun to come into it and be like, oh, I know what this is. That's a great place to start. Do you want to give us a brief introduction to the concepts of melodrama? Because they're really going to set a tone yes. for this film. Yeah. So Douglas Sirk in the 50s was especially famous for making these kinds of films, but they've been around since the very, very beginning. A lot of silent films are melodrama. Uh, of course, melody and drama. So it's like there's almost always a theme, like like the endless love theme, that carries you through the movie. And the whole point is just like every human emotion heightened as possible. Right. And so you get like these... They're all like scandalous. There's always love affairs. There's always somebody falls in love with the wrong person. There's often like incest or like and like weird shit often? happens. Really? Often? O- often enough. <laughs> often enough that you're expecting the paint to peel from the walls sure. on these things. People die. People are murdered. You know, it's uh, – I wouldn't say murdered exactly, but, you know, we'll get die, back die to Die tragically, People perhaps? die tragically. Yes. Exactly. People, there, there's there's By tragedy. passing cars because they're not watching when they cross the street, for example, to pick a random example. To pick a random example. <laughs> things like that it's happen. It's that elevated emotional state, though, isn't it? That's Absolutely. really what defines the melody. It's kind of – a musical without songs. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's usually families too. It's usually mm-hmm. family drama. So I always think of people like yelling in the dining room, you know, when the mom's <laughs> crying on the floor, you know. Uh, Rebel Without a Cause is a great sure. example too. Yeah, lots of times young people and because young people have these heightened emotions and these passions that just, you know, can change the trajectory of the whole world and the whole family. <laughs> and... And so you often have like teenagers at play or someone who's just recently divorced and now refinding themselves out in the world or something. So Yeah, that's an interesting quality of the melodrama that I hadn't thought about until right now. You're right. We oftentimes anchor in these people who are not a part of mainstream society these powerful emotions. They're kind of liberated from the strictures of everyday life so they can act more outrageously, more yeah. excessively, just be larger in every dimension so that we can explore these hugely elevated emotional stakes and emotional circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's definitely true. And of course, there's a huge conflation because we're talking about emotions, how dare we? There's a huge conflation between melodramas and women's pictures. Yes, Particularly coming through the 50s and the 60s, which kind of informs Zeffirelli's approach to filmmaking. We'll talk a little more about Zeffirelli in a minute. First, though, Tom Cruise. (laughs) Yes. This is not a show about Cruise's personal life. We're not going to be giving a lot of biographical information as we move forward. But I do think that his status as a movie star is defined in part, particularly in this, the first stage of his career, by his meteoric rise. So we do need to understand a little bit about where he comes from so that we can track where he is going and how quickly he gets there. Yeah, I love that. Cruz is born in Syracuse, New York, July 3rd, 1962, into a poor Catholic family. He's the second of four children, the only boy in this family. You sometimes hear about his brother, William Mapother. That is not his brother. That is his cousin. That is the actor. That is, uh, you may know him best as Ethan Rom from Lost, one of our favorite TV shows. Cruz's father struggled to maintain regular employment, partly because of his alcoholism, and he was also physically abusive to all the members of Cruz's immediate family. He divorces Cruz's mother when Tom is 11, and then they continue to move around. He goes to 15 schools in 12 years. He is always bullied. He is always the outsider. In a pivotal 2006 interview with Parade magazine, he said, quote, I had no really close friend, someone who understands you. I was always the new kid in the wrong shoes, the wrong accent. I didn't have the friend to share things with and confide in. That, I think, points to a loneliness. At the heart of Tom Cruise's movie star persona, 
that we are going to see again and again mm -hmm. and again. Cruz graduates high school in New Jersey. He immediately moves to New York with an eye on becoming a stage actor. Initially, he's there for a year. He busses tables. He has little to no success. He moves out to L.A. and almost immediately is cast as Billy in Endless Love. Which brings us to the movie itself. Elizabeth, you have a game for the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> I do, yeah. We were talking about ways to do a quick plot synopsis for people who hadn't seen the movie, but it's always boring and dry and stale. So I thought instead it would be fun if we played the trailer game and uh, we had to improvise a like 30-second trailer to the movie. Yes. And you get to go first. This is so Congratulations. fun. I'm so glad that you did this to me. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to improvise a quick 30-second trailer. I don't even have the character names on a piece of paper in front of me. So this is going uh -oh. to be fun. David and Jade. David and Jade. Do I remember their last names right now? I do not. That's okay. So I'm going to improvise. Do I have to do trailer voice? Is that a part of this game? I think now yes. Now as we're established. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm making this more difficult for myself with every snap. Okay. Here we go. David and Jade have it all. They're young. They're casually wealthy. They're in love. They live in Chicago that looks a lot like New York. As their passions rise and they begin to discover the world of sex and sexuality, a conflagration builds that threatens to consume not only their endless love, but their families and a really beautiful house made of old newspapers and wicker. <laughs> this summer, <laughs> endless love. Is that what we do? That's what we do. Okay, that was right. wonderful. Next week, it's your turn. I'm going to be much kinder to you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> so let's get into it. Let's talk about Endless Love, which was released on July 17th, 1981. This is a film largely forgotten by history. It is Franco Zeffirelli's lowest rated film on the IMDb. It is now significant basically for only two things. The Academy Award nominated song by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross. Right. And the debut of Tom Cruise. It's also the second credit for James Spader. Sorry, not James Spader. Jimmy Spader. Jimmy Spader. Little Jimmy Spader. <laughs> he's in this film. It's only a second movie. I Gee, love shucks. him. I just think he's great, especially in these, these roles where he's a teenager and he's always got that just... He seems like if you looked at a still of his face, like he'd be such a sweet, nice boy. But he's never a sweet, nice boy. He's always kind of an asshole. I think that is the secret. That's, That's the key the, right there to it. James Spader's yeah, career. It's yes. so true. An actor who I love at his most malevolent. I think he's just yes. so engaging. We were and talking about him the other day as uh, Ultron, the voice of Ultron. An incredible performance. So great. In I a, think about it often. In a series which so often fails, in a film, honestly, which so often fails its villains. Yes. It's so interesting to see what he brings to that role. Completely agree. Let's do a little bit of framing here, Elizabeth. The thing about Endless Love is that the first act is a lot of fun. And then so much fun. It yeah. goes off the rails. And there's a Way lot about both the film itself and the production context for this film, which are, not to put too fine a point on it, bummers. There's a yeah. lot of controversial and difficult material yes. surrounding this film. So what I've done, you can see there on the table in front of you, are three slips of paper. Yes, thank you. Those are your lifelines for this episode <laughs> of The Last Star in Hollywood. Okay. At any point, you can say, this is a bummer, I want to talk about something else. Unfold one of those pieces of paper, and we'll talk about whatever's on it. Okay, I love Deal? it. Deal? <laughs> it looks like a lot. I was expecting for you to like have handwritten something really fast, but these look like paragraphs, so I'm excited. It's like you're meeting me now for the first time. <laughs> it's true. You I don't expected know I five handwritten words, and I gave you a hundred words. <laughs> yes, typewritten. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I love it. Endless Love is adapted from a 1979 book by Scott Spencer, which follows basically the same story in a much more complicated, fractured chronological structure with a much greater insight into David's flawed and tormented character. It's easy to see, on the one hand, why Zeffirelli was drawn to it. It's also difficult to understand how he could have missed the point so badly. Yeah. This is what Scott Spencer says, quote, I was frankly surprised that something so tepid and conventional could have been fashioned from my slightly unhinged novel about the glorious, destructive violence of erotic obsession. Yeah, that sounds much more like the movie that I saw. Spencer gets the it. the story that I the saw. The story that the you saw. The story that I saw was unhinged. <laughs> yeah. The film that I saw was romantic. It was weird. It is strange. And this is going to put us in a difficult position as we're trying to discuss this film, yeah. as we're trying to like critically understand this film, there's this uh, concept in, in media analysis and cultural analysis that's introduced by the British sociologist and theorist Stuart Hall in the early 1980s. This idea of the dominant or oppositional reading that an author or an artist is encoding a meaning into a piece of work, passing that piece of work to you, and then you decode the meaning yes. from that piece of work. If you are aligned with that artist's 
understanding of the world, their moral philosophy, their sense of ethics, then you can take that meaning as a true and pure thing. If you do not agree with where the artist stands on certain things in the world, as mm -hmm. we perhaps do not agree with Franco Zeffirelli on Certainly many of not. the things he believed, then you engage in what is called an oppositional reading. It's basically a way of saying, I don't agree with the underpinnings of this work, but I'm still going to analyze it to try to understand it. These are both modes of, of active interrogation. Yeah, okay. So that's what we're going to be engaged in, or perhaps Stuart Hall's third approach, this negotiated reading where you kind of have to manage between the two. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. That's so where I find things interesting, is negotiating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and one of the reasons that we're going to have so much trouble agreeing with Zeffirelli's vision of this film, I think, is that Zeffirelli himself was a very complicated and controversial figure. Should we begin with Romeo and Juliet? Should we begin with perhaps the thing yeah. that makes him most notable in the United States? Definitely. Yeah. When I when I saw the name Franco Zeffirelli, I was like, oh, I know this, but I couldn't think why until I got it traced back for me to yeah. Romeo and Juliet, which was 68, right? 68, yeah. yes. A hugely successful film that really gets Zeffirelli some notice, gets him some attention. And yeah. most of his career after that is in some way an echo or a reflection of the work that he did on Romeo and Juliet, including the nude depiction of underage actors, yeah. which perhaps much less controversial in 1968 than it is now, but a continuing theme through all of his work. Very recently, earlier this year, in fact, the stars of Romeo and Juliet, Olivia Hussey and Leonard Whiting, have sued Paramount, the uh, copyright holders to Romeo and Juliet, citing child pornography charges, in yeah. fact, which is an awful thing, an awful circumstance. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible to think this, this far out, but we really are all, as a society, rethinking what's acceptable the degree to which directors and executives wielded power over people, over artists especially, and actors especially, and female actresses especially, is finally being reckoned with. And while it surprised me to uh, hear that these you know, people in their 70s were suing for something that happened so long ago, I can't imagine like how much of your identity and your life that becomes. They, they were Romeo and Juliet, and the movie was incredibly successful. I hate this. This is this is a bummer. This is why the papers are here. Can I open a paper now? Yes. <laughs> is it too soon? Already. <laughs> I only Emergency. Made you, Emergency. I only gave you three. I don't know that's going to be enough. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Let's open one now. Open it okay. up close to the mic so we can okay. hear it. This is a physical prop that is right it here for the is. podcast. I like that originally when Alistair pitched this idea, he said, I'll give you a sealed envelope. I'm thinking we don't have envelopes, right? Because it's 2023 and we don't have envelopes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't sent a piece of mail in like seven years. Okay. I had to fight with our printer for 20 minutes just to produce this piece of paper. Okay. Don Murray, who plays Jade's dad, Hugh, who is great, is an excellent actor. Yes, he is. Who did many, many things, but most notably in this house, he played Battlin Bushnell Mullins. Dougie Jones's boss at the insurance firm in the third season of Twin Peaks. I did not recognize him. That's great. Isn't he terrific? He's so great in Twin Peaks, he's, but he's also, I think, very good in Endless Love. I think he's great. Yeah. So handsome. So, so like, handsome. sophisticated looking. I totally buy him as rich doctor dad. It's a wild performance. There are a couple of line readings that I love so much because they are so unhinged. There's one in particular yeah. in the kitchen when he's being confronted by Anne. She has that accusation, are you saving her for a rich man? Yeah. And he has this incredible line read where he says, God damn it, that's not fair. <laughs> this incredible, incredible moment. <laughs> that was a good Thank uh, you. Yeah, that was a good impression. <laughs> I absolutely love him. And of course, he is so wonderful in Twin Peaks as as Batlin Bushnell Mullins. He is uh, this real heart of goodness. I've only seen the third season once. So I don't have strong, well, I have strong memories, but I, I can't put it all like together in that way. So that'll be something to look forward to next time. Yeah. Also, Richard Kiley, I'm reading from Alistair's paper here, so I'm as surprised as everybody else. Richard Kiley, who played David's dad, Arthur, was a multiple Tony winner and originated the role of Don Quixote in Man of La Mancha, as well as being the first person to record and release The Impossible Dream from that play. He is also the voice of the park tour in the original Jurassic Park. No way, because Michael Crichton, when writing the book, specifically said the narrator was Richard Kiley and Spielberg spared no expense. That's amazing. Okay. Wow. Good to know. Thank you. That lightened my heart. Good. So now we can go back to terrible stories oh, of the God. abusive actors. Yes. All right. We really can't escape the Brooke Shields of it all. Yes. As we move into our discussion of this film. Brooke Who Shields. Who I want to say first, 
is luminous and wonderful in I this film. I adore Brooke a Shields. A real yeah. actor. Yeah. Yeah. And she has escaped this film in a way, in a kind of way that Olivia Hussey also escaped Romeo and Juliet. Neither of those men escaped. Martin Hewitt did not have a career after Endless Love, hardly at all. Leonard Whiting did not have a career after Romeo and Juliet, hardly at all. But it's interesting to see, and, and Hussey's career, of course, is no comparison to Brooke Shields, who is, yeah, absolutely a fixture in, in the entertainment industry today. She's great. Her path to stardom is extremely complicated. Right. She is, at a very young age, sexualized and sent into the marketplace by her mother, Terry Shields. A process which begins with a nude shoot for Playboy in 1975, when Shields is 10 years old. It's so messed up. It's, yeah. That she survived it at all. And now it's... The woman that she is is extraordinary. It's interesting how this film has become so relevant this year with the legal action being taken against Paramount by Hussey and Whiting of Mm -hmm. Romeo and Juliet and the release of Brooke Shields' memoir, in effect, Pretty Baby, which is the film that she does before doing Blue Lagoon, before doing uh, Endless Love. She is, to some extent, nude in all of those films. It was a different time, I suppose, right. but also we must condemn Absolutely, this. absolutely. And it's yeah. tempting, I think, to condemn her mother, to condemn you know, a, a woman with whom Brooke Shields had throughout yeah. her life a very fractious and difficult relationship. But I think it's important to always remember that this is an exploitation of a young person which requires an entire infrastructure. A whole industry there supporting it. There is an it. industry yeah. here. You're yeah. absolutely right. This is... Ugh. Sexualization, objectification, commodification of a young woman, which for profit. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So while it's easy to maybe, you know, put her head in her hands or or seek distraction in little pieces of paper in front of you on the table here and say, what kind of mother? We also have to say, what kind of industry? What kind of country? Yeah. From kind of culture. Our vantage point here in 2023, it's almost impossible to look back on that stuff. Mm. What I find really interesting about it too is that. Those aspects of Brooke Shields' career have all but vanished from the public recollection of Brooke Shields, with the exception of the Blue Lagoon, which I think is the only, hey, Brooke Shields was naked when she was a teenager in this movie. Right. Yeah. I always think of Suddenly Susan. Oh, sure. Yeah. Much, much later. Suddenly Susan is the first thing I think of because, uh, I guess, of uh, of my age. So I'm 39. So Suddenly Susan was, what, mid-90s? Early 90s. Early 90s. Yeah. So it was just on TV. And that's who I knew Brooke Shields to be. I didn't even remember the Calvin Klein commercials. Uh, For which she was paid a half a million dollars. Damn. Yeah, mid nineties, from nineteen ninety six to two thousand. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's like when I'm in, you know, with the brilliant Nestor Carbonell in that show. I actually, I, I'm not a big like nineties sitcom fan yeah. at no, all. No, they're pretty bad. But yeah. weirdly, but I, I did a watch a few episodes <laughs> yeah. of Silly Susan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then more recently. I loved her in the stupid Christmas movie with Carrie Elwes. Oh, uh, a, a castle, castle for, for Christmas. Christmas. Yes. yes, she's terrific in she's that. She's terrific if, if, by a certain standard, right? Like, oh, <laughs> we in, in our house we love dumb holiday movies and holidays. We watch one a day in the month of December, probably, <laughs> <laughs> unless we're doing a Princess Switch, and then sometimes we marathon those. <laughs> I don't know. So I enjoyed it for what it was. You can't start with one princess switch. You, I mean, you can't. Yeah. You have to switch them back. <laughs> I don't think that that was the subtitle of the princess switch too, but it should have been. It should have been. So this film is shot in 1981 when Shields is 15 years old and her co-star Martin Hewitt is 22 years old. Also, just to keep the, the chronology simple here, Tom Cruise, when shooting this film, 18 years old. We'll get back to him in okay. just a little while. The film goes before the MPAA for a rating five times. It is initially given an X rating, which makes it commercially unviable. It just would not make any money being released in that state. They go back five times to try and cut it down to an R rating. There are a couple of interesting details in that process. The first is the question over whether or not Brooke Shields used a body double. It is now claimed pretty widely that she did use a body double. And in fact, those nude scenes are not Brooke Shields herself. However... No body double is credited. There is no name attached to a body double anywhere on the internet that I could find. And Chris Henshey, who has been married to Brooke Shields since 2001, has asserted publicly that, in fact, there was no body double, and that is his wife. And that's in defense of her. That is, oh, absolutely in defense of her. Yes, yes. In in criticism of the filmmaking process, yeah. Yes, And, and and them trying to hide it. Implying, certainly, that... There was no body double. This was a story that was made up by the studio to to defang the MPAA right. as they are trying to to move through this editorial process. 
There are also two instances of conspicuous ADR dialogue in this film, of looped dialogue, of dialogue that is recorded after the primary photography is complete. The actor will go into a little a little soundproof box, record a line of dialogue, and it will be superimposed over right. the original recording. Both are delivered by Hugh, Jade's dad. Both say that she is 15. If you watch his mouth move, however, in both sequences, one is in the kitchen right after that line that I just quoted earlier, and the other is when he's out by the car telling David that he cannot see Jade for 30 days. In both instances, he asserts that Jade is 14, uh, sorry, is 15, but in both cases, his mouth clearly says 14. Yeah. You have to wonder if that's another MPAA edit. And I am baffled by this because she is 15 in the book. So if she was made 14 in the adaptational process, that is a choice that Zeffirelli is making to age her down still further. Uh, it's, it's gross and horrible, and is. I hate it. It is. Can I have another piece of paper now? You absolutely okay. can. Yes, I think we're, I think we're done. <laughs> it's so awful. We're done with the behind-the-scenes controversy. We only have the entire film to go. Just Let's the, open up another film piece of to paper. Go. We Let's haven't even started, and I'm two papers in. Oh, God. <laughs> Thanks, Franco Zeffirelli. Okay. This paper says, you're at a karaoke bar in Los Angeles. The night is warm. The drinks are good. There hasn't been a wildfire or an earthquake all week. The rumor is that Tom Cruise himself is somewhere in attendance. It's your turn to sing. Do you choose Endless Love from Endless Love by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross? Take My Breath Away from Top Gun by Berlin? Old Time Rock and Roll from Risky Business by Bob Seger? Kokomo from Cocktail by the Beach Boys, of course? Book of Days from Far and Away by Enya? First of all, I do not remember Book of Days by Enya. You sure do. You just don't remember that it's called Book of Days. I remember fucking loving Enya in the (laughs) 90s, though. I remember that. Uh, For me, this is a no-brainer. It's Take My Breath Away from Top Gun. Really? Absolutely. Wow, I tried to pick like a middling two bad songs here. Well, and the thing is like old-time rock and roll was one of the first songs I ever karaoke because it was on like a really stupid cassette tape when I was a kid. And that's like how I learned so many classic sure quote unquote rock songs <laughs> like you know uh but that one was definitely there kokomo i also learned cuz we had a beach boys cassette of karaoke songs but yeah take my breath away that's the one that i just i think we all, i think that was also i think i had maybe all of these songs <laughs> on a karaoke cassette growing up that as is a kid a which weird is glimpse into fantastic. your childhood yeah except for book of days wow. which i don't recall we'll have to listen to that i'll after. maybe splice it in well i think i'll probably save it for the uh, far and away podcast <laughs> yes. maybe you'll give us a karaoke rendition of each of these songs as we get to the appropriate oh music. sure patreon only sure <laughs> <laughs> that's a great opportunity though to talk a little about endless love the song about from the this song. film yeah, the sure. only thing that's really endured from this film at all what do you think of that song i think it's fine i'm really sorry oh okay i know that's not an exciting answer uh we want like in the film they have (laughs) in the film after the party which is like this very small intimate if you will uh family gathering that david is also here for that's this beautiful dinner party and then suddenly it gets weirdly bohemian baroque dinner party yes Yes. which is awesome and I want my life to be that actually with less teenagers but (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand the idea of having a party and inviting teenagers to it as an adult oh I think this is fundamental to our understanding of Jade's family we'll we'll maybe wait for the plot breakdown before we get to the point is they cover it in the movie and the cover is definitely not good the cover version that is performed the sung cover version that is performed in the film by uh, James Spader's character's Keith's girlfriend is very bad all of the string arrangements very bad yeah. The awful, oppressive, haunting minor key variation. Oh, so bad. Yeah. No, really terrible. Yeah. But, but the end credits version, I'm going to go to bat Diana for it. Ross. I yeah. think that is a beautiful song. The song itself is very simple, very, very sparse, even. But that particular arrangement, the arrangement of the harmonies in that version, I think is, is really beautiful. I'm not a huge fan yeah. of either performer, but I think that's a really good song. I'll have to really give it an actual listen because I don't think I've really listened to it musically it just to me sounds like very pappy and it's, it's a hard pappy, song to listen to happy as I think what I meant but they call the dad pappy in this movie it's a wild film yeah let's get to it so we are introduced to young Jade and David a couple very much in love we're introduced to their families we're introduced to the Axelrod family his uh, David's very distant parents who are like emotionally reserved we get that great sequence of him moving through the house as they are working on uh, legal cases of some kind in different spaces with different groups of people it's a really excellent like visual depiction of 
the alienation that David feels that informs, I think, so much of his character into an integrated position or, or desires at least an integrated yeah. position with Jade's family. Although we get that lovely moment of affection, too, because his dad says, oh, is that my old tuxedo? You look yeah. great, son. <laughs> and she says something about how he looks like a Rockefeller or something. So there's like there's still kindness and affection Absolutely, in the family, yeah. just yeah. not. What would you say? Just not like an authentic. Well, isn't this just the heart of the film? There is like decency and kindness and appropriate familial boundaries. And you know what we hate in this film? Decency and <laughs> kindness and appropriate familial boundaries. That's true. You know what we love? Really destructive passion and obsession. Yeah. That's the virtue. This is where we come into our oppositional reading, I think. I'm not sure that I'm completely aligned with what Zeffirelli is putting down here. Definitely not. No, it's weird. It was interesting to watch. So David leaves his home. He goes over to the Butterfield's house. Yeah. He's already been dating Jade for a little while, but it's still very new. So you can see how he's like ingratiating himself into this family. There, there's a little bit of like friction now between him and Keith because it, it comes out really fast that like Keith found him and he was Keith was the friend first. Yes, so, Keith introduced him to Jade and in, to the whole family. Yeah. yeah, so there's already this weird friction between those two. So you're like, oh, is it going to be that Keith is in love with David? Is that what this is? Well, let's take a minute. And, is it? What, what is Keith's I, I mean, deal? What is what James is Spader's deal yeah. in this film? He's well, he's certainly projecting jealousy. Certainly, I'm getting jealousy for sure. He's jealous of the attention that David is getting. While also apparently being jealous or, or, or envious of David's romantic and sexual relationship with Jade. With and Jade, right. Jade's romantic and sexual relationship with David. And David's position as a second son in this house. I guess a third son. There is a younger brother who shall play no part in these yeah. proceedings. <laughs> I don't know why he's here. <laughs> really thrilled, actually, that in this film we don't have a 12-year-old wrapped up in this, yeah. you know, maelstrom of, of incestuous desire. I'm mm -hmm. glad that, that he's just very quietly in his room until there is a fire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. In this film of all films, where this obsessive desire is generally presented as a good thing. Do you think that Keith is supposed to be an admirable figure because he's embodying that desire more publicly than any other? Or is the jealousy aspect something that is... I, I think he's just giving us desire. more of that, like, teenager, every emotion is the biggest emotion. So, like, when he's mad, he's pissed. Mm -hmm. When he's a little envious, he's jealous. Yes, it seems that Zeffirelli finds that to be virtuous because there's no bullshit about it. Like, you don't have to guess what Keith there, is feeling because he just says what he's feeling. That's true, but he is presented in a villainous aspect. I yeah, think. no, he beats the shit out of David a couple of times, right? Although David sure. deserves it. Though that so could also be know. entirely supportable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is it possible that what we're seeing in Keith is, is jealousy, right? It is this kind of envy that isn't really represented in the other characters. We're going to see lines of desire between a lot of these characters in weird ways. I don't know. We get jealousy from the mother, too. The mother's jealous of David, and, or David and Jade's relationship. Is she, or does she just want to replicate it herself? Isn't that the same thing? No, I don't think so. I, uh, she doesn't want to take okay. anything away okay. from Jade, Yeah. right? Yeah. She's happy for, this, this is a very like polyamorous compersion <laughs> kind of thing happening here, where she seems to, yeah, want a part of it for herself, or want her version of it. More than she wants to take it away from David right. and Jay. She doesn't want to take it for herself. Right. She just wants to also experience it. In That's exactly the same way as at this party. In fact, let's get back to the Butterfield House. Yeah. We're introduced to this wild bohemian family. Yes, which is a great house, by the way. If a we can take just a moment to talk about house. production design. We absolutely can. The house is fantastic. We both, of course, went and looked it up on Zillow or whatever immediately because we had to know, uh, which is in Long Island is the house, yeah, right? Exactly yeah, exactly right. Yeah, you can... The Even link, though it's set in Chicago. The link that we found was on Realtor.com. I will add yeah. that link in the show notes you because should. that house is amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So this great house, which is is not perfect like the paint is peeling the stuff inside is looks like it's been found at like thrift stores and antique shops great colors and paisleys and fabrics and like feathers and pampas grass it's flipping fantastic and when we first see it Brooke Shields as Jade comes out in her like costume in for the, the night because they're all gown, wearing costumes yes, yes. Yeah. and she's got this fantastic white Edwardian dress uh, with like the high square neck and all of the lace and her hair's up and it's she's got like the flower garland and the ribbons down her back she looks exquisite and the whole thing feels like it's another time yeah. which yeah. of course the book is set in 69 right there's this curious displacement in time for the Butterfields in particular because the book the, the the pivotal event of this plot takes place in the summer of 1967 in the summer of love so this 
hippie, casual, yeah. bohemian family that's kind of integrated with the teenagers in their community. It makes that's so kind much of more sense. Breaking than all of these 81. social. Yeah. 81? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. We're about to get to Reaganomics, you guys. Yeah. These people are not living this life in 81. So that's one of the ways in which I think it feels so broken. Mm -hmm. But that brokenness really works in the context of the film because we're getting this juxtaposition between this incredibly now bohemian family who aren't so representative of a social movement, who are just weird themselves. Yeah. And the Axelrods, who are, by comparison, much more 80s, much more staid, much more traditional. Yes, yes. Though still, she describes herself as a socialist. So, I mean, they're, they're sure. still very liberal, but <laughs> by comparison. It's still yeah, Chicago. Absolutely, absolutely conservative. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So from there, we move into, yeah, the dinner party first. We get to, oh, we have the entry of Anne. Yes. Of Anne Jade's mother. Jade's mother comes down the stairs in this fantastic, strange outfit that she found at the thrift store that day, hiding behind a fan. But specifically, she's like, David, don't look at me. David, I don't want you to see me yet. And it's very flirtatious. It's extremely flirtatious. And we get the camera, the the a POV shot from, from Anne's perspective, looking down at David. David looking up with what looks to me like absolute admiration. Yeah. I just couldn't tell who was fucking whom, I got to say. From the very <laughs> beginning of this movie, I was like, everyone is having sex, I think. Or, or is spoilers, it... nobody is having sex. Yes, it's such a weird film for exactly so that weird. reason. The whole film has all of these relationships that are so unusual. And I feel like if it wasn't Zeffirelli, if it was a cool, chill, queer woman, for example, I would be like, this is so interesting because... Of course, people who are in close relationships and like tight knit communities and people who love each other express a certain kind of affection in certain ways. Like, of course, sometimes, you know, your daughter's boyfriend is going to have a little crush on you and sometimes you're going to have a little crush on him or whatever, but no one talks about that. You know, like those things well, are true and interesting. But in Zeffirelli's hands, they're weird and gross. Well, it's interesting that you kind of invoke the perspective of a queer filmmaker there because Zeffirelli himself reveals that he is gay yes. in the mid-1990s. Yes, which I will say I did assume watching this film. Like it is, there, it, I do think that there's a queer gaze already. And From I should say also that I use queer with the most love and support and as a queer woman myself. So yes. just to put that out there. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very positive discussion. Very of positive. Queerness yes. and representation. <laughs> yes. But it, I think it's fair to infer a certain amount of conflict and a certain amount of, of self-concealment in Zeffirelli's work because he yeah. grows up staunchly Catholic because he is, you know, associated with far right politics. He serves two terms in the Italian Senate under Silvio Berlusconi's far right party. So wow. his his politics and, and is noted throughout the early 1990s for opposing gay rights, for opposing women's rights in Italy. Mm. His politics are extremely complicated. And for him to then come out, I think, does suggest that there is an element perhaps of sublimation of desire in his work, that what we are seeing are forbidden desires given revelation, given this yeah. excessive realization as it's we interesting. move through. It might it's an interesting be read. easier at least to be a little warmer toward the film and a little warmer toward him yes. if we still cannot you know, move the needle on our appreciation for the specifics of this plot. Yes, yeah, or, or, and even of his person, but but as as the art itself, yeah. So let's entangle another pair of threads here as we move forward through the film. Uh, Keith's friends arrive. This turns into a teenage bacchanal. We get yeah, the first version so of weird. Endless Love sung on mm -hmm. the soundtrack. And we have this sequence where Jade is sitting on her father's lap. Yes. Very close, very intimate. Very kissy. Very kissy, very yeah. outright romantic, given yes. the, the sweeping soundtrack and all of these things happening. Yes. Endless Love is playing he as then, she's sitting on her dad's lap. It's yeah. clear transition. It's this symbolic marriage, right? Yeah. He, he releases her to go to David, passing possession of this beautiful young woman from one man to another, of Gross. course. She ascends the staircase, which has like interesting symbolic as we move toward apotheosis, as we move toward full realization and maturity, right? Sure, she okay. ascends the staircase up mm -hmm. to David, and then they are cloistered. They are removed from the action yes. of the scene because they are on the staircase behind elevated. The, the banister yeah. there. Yeah, elevated, withdrawn, but also concealed, secret, intimate, mm -hmm. cozy. It's a weird scene. It is a beautiful scene. I will beautiful say, scene. we should probably frame this out a little bit too. I think the first act of this film is genuinely fascinating. I really loved it. Yeah. I really did. It yeah. is. Yeah. 
a little uncomfortable in places. Yes. It is challenging, but certainly in so many and challenging places. in such interesting yes. ways, I thought, especially since I didn't know where the movie was going to go. Oh, boy. Nobody knew where this movie nobody was going to go. Nobody knew. Yeah. I had an idea at one point while nearing the end of this film, and I didn't even know nearing the end of this film the magnitude of the sharks <laughs> that would be jumped. But I had an idea that if I ever sit down to watch this film with someone who hasn't seen it, I'm going to give them a little tequila shot right at the beginning. And I'm uh-huh. gonna, just going to put it down next to them and say, okay, Take that shot when you think this film has reached its wildest peak. When something that is unprecedentedly unexpected happens, take that shot and I'll pour you another one and then we'll see how drunk you are by the end of the film. (laughs) And then I'll take you to the emergency room. Yes. It is a crazy (laughs) film of plot twists. It's true. And then, of course, we arrive at perhaps the most pivotal action in the first act after the party is over. Oh, yeah. After we've had Pappy playing his trumpet. Yeah, which is cool and sexy. It is, it's weirdly cool and sexy. I like hot dads. This might not surprise anybody, <laughs> but I appreciate it. We're revealing a lot Q on this podcast. Very much. Yeah, and, and at this point, I think he is great. We'll, we'll see how he turns out and how life works out for Hugh as we move forward, of course. Of course, this sequence begins with the lighting of the fire. Hugh comes into the room mm-hmm. to find that David has lit the fire. Has lit the fire in his very own living room. It's surprising that there isn't outright poker imagery happening here <laughs> but the metaphor is there nonetheless as well as of course representative poker, I just got it that's foreshadowing. terrible <laughs> this is not a subtle film it's not subtle you no. have stoked this fire again, in my own hearth how dare you again there is no actual romantic relationship between these two or sexual at all the, the, Physi- the dad and daughter like, physically within we're talking about it yes we're like lampshading it yes but it does not occur in this film so David lights the fire in the grate, mom and dad go off to bed, and then we get this great, yeah, a little bit of theater where, oh, well, you really should go. It's getting late. Yeah, I got a test in the morning. Door <laughs> opens, door shuts, and then they get naked. This is David pretending to leave not 30 seconds after he promised Hugh that he would stay until the fire went out also. So oh, he's not even true. he's not even a man of his word. At this point, at this, this point, kid, yeah, this that's kid true, because he had said, don't worry, I won't leave until the fire is well out, yeah. And then they immediately disrobe. They do. This is not the most shocking or scandalous part of this particular no. scene. When we don't, at this point, have nude Brooke Shields, which is great. We do get full, what's his name? Martin Hewitt? Martin Hewitt, We do yes. get full Martin yes. Hewitt ass a lot of times. We get a lot of boy butt in this movie. Again, queer gaze. The thing about this scene is that it's flipping beautiful. It's it is. It's really romantic. It's shot gorgeously. It takes its time in a way that modern cinema does not do anymore. We the don't pace let... of this film in general. In general, is is languid for the first half. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> goes off the rails later. But yes, in general, yeah. But I loved how much the scene took its time, how romantic it is, mm-hmm. and then how bizarre and yes. strange it suddenly turns. When Anne comes down the stairs again. Yes. So this is perhaps the most shocking visual element of the whole film, I think, is Jade's mother watching Jade and David make love in front of the fire. Yeah. While consumed say, by emotions, just yeah. so many emotions. You, you say make love because it is make love. They're not having sex. They're not fucking. No, it is incredibly it is romantic. It romantic is incredibly sweetly intentioned. And that is obviously what Anne is responding to mm-hmm. also is the the making love of it. Yes. But it's weird. But she is like, moved by the enormity and the purity and the the unstoppability, right? Yeah. There's something about the fact that she is she is acting as a voyeur to two people who should not be engaged in this action anyway. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Who promised that they wouldn't. So they are breaking rules and she is breaking rules and there's this this closeness and this kind of collaboration in that sense. Yeah. They are all in that moment. And all in the outsiders. firelight. So yeah. there's something very primal about it absolutely you'll notice that that firelight too isn't flickering in a lot of those shots a lot of those shots that's just an orange light that's just an orange lamp right next just a big orange lamp yes (laughs) but again yeah that takes nothing away from the immediacy of the action it is gorgeously shot and if you can get over the that is a 22 year old man on top of a 15 year old girl which is difficult to get over honestly but it really is yeah it is still Mm -hmm. a very loving and and complexly intentioned scene i think Mm -hmm. So that takes us half an hour into the film. And from there, things only accelerate. Yes. Jade and David begin this ongoing sexual relationship where David right. is sneaking into the house, sneaking into her room, spending the night, 
uh, Hugh is initially... Which is like almost sanctioned by the parents. Like everybody looks the other way. Sanctioned by Anne, certainly. Yes. Hugh, it does seem, is oblivious or is either happy to pretend to be oblivious, but when confronted with direct evidence has yes. to take action. I think that's probably more likely. I think uh -huh. So you believe that he knew all along what was happening? Yeah, more or less. But yeah. he could pretend to not well, know which didn't demand to, a response Well, they're trying to have him. this, you know, cool bohemian household. And sure. I mean, that's Anne's argument when, when it all comes to light. Yeah. So we move through the sequence where Jade and David are sleeping together regularly until Jade is so overwhelmed by all of the passion and all of the sex that she can't stay awake in school anymore. Right. That she is actually breaking into her father's office to steal sleeping pills because yes. the sleeping pills will help her sleep. I'm unsure of what is supposed to be happening in this scene. It's presented to us. Because it's in the morning, so she's not going to take the sleeping pill then. Exactly. So is she taking the sleeping pills? Is she planning to take the sleeping pills so that she can sleep because she is not, in fact, staying up all night having sex with David, but is instead so consumed with the passion and the romance of this relationship that she's just lying that awake just at night sleep. staring at the scene? Yeah, I don't know. And maybe it was a Saturday. Maybe she was going to sleep all day. It's such a wild scene. Yeah. What do you think of Brooke Shields' performance? In this scene. Uh, in this scene, I don't think We it's don't good. want to be critical I'm of Brooke sorry. Shields. But, Brooke Shields, you're yeah. amazing, iconic. I mean, an absolute star, an absolute icon. I do not like this scene. <laughs> but I don't like anybody in this scene. No. It's ridiculous. It's just everybody's yelling at the tops of their voices. Everybody, it it's just so <laughs> elevated. It's so silly. It does remind me of an old improv game where you uh, you have a scene with multiple people and you set the volume meter at four. And then with every line of dialogue, the volume meter clicks yes. up by one. And it doesn't matter what you say. You just have to say it louder than the previous person. <laughs> yes. I've never because played that game. But yeah. By the end of this, we have all four of them. We've got Keith there too. Just bellowing and yeah. screaming. And even the kid, the, the young kid. Yeah. Sammy, is that his name? Uh, the, sure. I don't be. remember. Whatever. He's like 12 or 13. <laughs> but he's, I can't sleep in this house. And it's bizarre yeah, it's yeah. wild but we need to elevate our emotional tone and tenor at that point so mm -hmm. that we can justify the breaking point in the film the end of the film's first act which yeah. is hugh telling david that he cannot see jade right. for 30 days the consequences yes. are just too high and this is skipping over the big sex scene which i feel like we don't have to go into great detail about because we've already sure. talked about all the grossness it but also I serves do want to little say, to no narrative purpose no narrative yeah. purpose i do want to say despite it not being an effective sex scene mostly because they seem so young and inexperienced that it's yeah. weird and gross. I much preferred the romance by the fireplace. I will say that the lighting and cinematography of that scene are really gorgeous. Yeah. Again, yeah. we're just really representing the kind of glamorous old school romance yeah. that we're yeah. depicting it in is, this film. It is attempting to be romantic. Yeah, again, will, again will, we're back yeah. to the oppositional reading, back right? To the we can acknowledge reading. that this is what Zephyrelli's yeah, intention is while yeah. not acceding to his his moral yeah. demands on us as Didn't an audience. Didn't work for me no, at all. No, it's a weird one. Really beautiful. That's also, of course, the scandalous scene. That's the yes. that's the scene where we, yes. uh, or, or the first of two scenes where we uh, get either the nude body double or, or Brooke Shields herself, of course. Right. So that takes us past the breakup. And dear listener, if you would like to leave Endless Love with a certain warmth, with a certain yeah. complicated feeling of affection in this your bosom. This is a good time to bail. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Stop the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray. <laughs> oh, you don't think there's a steelbook? book? bought it on Blu-ray. steelbook of Endless Love. <laughs> Close that YouTube window. <laughs> there you go. More likely. <laughs> and go about your day. Because I really do think that the first act, yes, challenging, yes, tough, yes, provocative, in the best traditions of even 60s and 70s yeah. cinema, I think there's something really interesting happening here. And then the wheels fall off. And then, then completely. And then Tom Cruise appears. Well. And then Tom Cruise appears. Let's get to the Tom Cruise of it all, shall okay. we? Let's talk about Billy. Let's talk about Billy. Oh, my God. Uh, this is another spot where I felt very much a queer gaze. Like, queerest I have ever seen Tom Cruise look. This was amazing. <laughs> the shortest the shorts. The shortest shorts I have ever seen. Tiny, tiny denim shorts. Just wriggles out of those little white shirts. And it's, I mean, it's, I, I was laughing for 15 seconds before he started to talk. Uh, and the thing that he says is, I once tried to burn down a house. And, oh, yeah. I had yeah. a similar situation. This one time, I set a fire on the porch of my girlfriend's house. No, no, no. Not a girlfriend. He was eight years old. Oh, he was eight years old. So You're it right. doesn't it's, it's make any sense. It's, a, it's right. a stupid non sequitur. Like this dumb kid stumbles onto the scene, takes his shirt off, says something stupid, rolls around on the ground. Everybody looks at him like he's an idiot and then goes on about their day. Except that the thing that he said is, oh, yeah, because the other kid says, um, 
If a girl did that to me, I'd set fire to her house, which is a freaky thing to say, first sure. of all. Not first cool. Off, not cool. Not cool, yeah. guy. Uh, and yeah, Billy is like, yeah, I did that one day. I was eight <laughs> years old and there was a big stack of newspapers. You know how much wet newspaper smoke? It was incredible. But the craziest thing is, because I got real scared, see? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> You're an inch away from G. Willikers. <laughs> an inch away. It's so funny. Um, yeah, but that his mom thought he was a hero because he eventually put the fire out himself. And right. they thought he just found it. And he's like, but don't tell my mom. And it's so weird. It's so weird. He's like rolling on the floor. Here's the thing. Laughing at his own joke, which isn't a joke. It's an anecdote. It's I so weird. he's great. He is great. Don't get me wrong. He's great. He's magnetic. A breath of fresh air. Magnetic. Yeah. It's so he's much energy. It's, is he it, Tom Cruise? He's not Tom Cruise yet. But he's not quite Tom, no, not Tom Cruise. No, this is actually a version mm-hmm. of Tom Cruise that we are not going to see very often. But this is theater kid Tom Cruise. This is, he gets involved in high school theater. He goes to New York to try and yeah. find work on the stage. This is theater kid Cruise. This and is he is shot. giving it his all. And we are not going to see that. We are going to see throughout his career very technically proficient, technically excellent performances yeah. that are oftentimes a little hollow. That are oftentimes a little bit soulless, a little bit mechanical. Mechanical is good, yeah. And this is not that. This is so much first night high school theater yeah. energy, which is a thing that I, in my real life, just love. <laughs> this is why yeah. I love Anne Hathaway when everybody hates Anne Hathaway. This is why yes. I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt when everyone hates Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yes. I love those try-hard theater kids. I really do. <laughs> and to see Tom Cruise delivering that, we are going to see it again. There are moments in his career when he mm-hmm. taps into that energy, although even then... It feels like it's a conscious exploitation of something he has within him rather than mm. a, a genuine, you know, return to that space of, of innocence and enthusiasm. Sure. But enthusiasm I love sure. this performance. And you I can absolutely you see why he's hired almost immediately for his follow-up film for Taps, which the we'll discuss next week. The only thing that surprises me about that is that he's really shot very poorly. I yeah. thought, like, he's in very bright sunlight, so he's got all these harsh lights and shadows, and then he's very squinty. You could be excused for missing that that's Tom Cruise if you're just watching yes, the movie passively. Certainly. Also through that sequence when he's on the ground, he's shot from below. He's shot from his feet upward. Yeah. And he's in terrific shape in this film, obviously, but there's that thing about Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is not a tall man. Yeah. This is not News at 11. Tom Cruise, pretty short guy. <laughs> yeah. When he is in extremely good shape, it's like his muscles have nowhere to go. It's like he's just a little bunched together. I know what you mean. In sure. a weird way, yeah. which is again not bad. It's it's even kind of compelling when you yeah. see it on screen. But it's it's not it's not quite what you would expect. Yeah. I, I'm yes, we're rambling a little bit, but this is the reason why we're doing the Tom Cruise podcast is that it's he true. is a fascinating, fascinating figure. Yeah. In this film, of course, forty five seconds. That's it. That's all. Absolutely you get. pivotal, though. So having been touched by the vision of Tom Cruise, David <laughs> immediately follows his terrible, terrible advice. God. Lights a fire on the Butterfield's porch, walks away to give himself, what, plausible deniability? I guess, yeah. But because the Butterfield's house is made out of dry newspaper and twigs, it goes up. Just immediately. This is a brilliantly shot sequence. Really kind of horrifying to watch. Yeah. Yeah. They set the actual fire. What you are seeing is a fire that they set and controlled in the actual house which exists. absurd. Wow. You would not be allowed to do that no. in a film. You should days. not be allowed to you do that. You should not yeah. be allowed to do it. Like so many things. Unable to extinguish the fire, David rushes inside and saves the family. Saves and everybody. For sure. a moment, there's the possibility that this film is going to go in a bizarre direction where he is in fact hailed as a hero. That does not happen. No. He does manage to save everyone, but is then charged with arson because yes. it's very obvious what happened. And then he's, which is, of he doesn't all even the, try to argue it, I think. Of all the crazy twists that this film takes, yeah. that is... The craziest and least expected, but also one that is strictly plausible. Yeah. I love that everyone's, no, you obviously set that fire. What are you doing? (laughs) You need to go to prison now. Yeah. He isn't. There's no even big confession scene. It's just just the judge being like, and you're going to to prison for arson. (laughs) Not prison, crucially, though. Not prison. Psychiatric hospital. Psychiatric hospital. He's being institutionalized because the judge recognizes, oh, you're in a Zeffirelli film. You're having big romantic feelings. You hear a lot of sweeping strings, do you? Yeah, yeah. Have a lot of lovemaking in the firelight. I get off to psychiatric health, uh, hospital for you. We then unexpectedly skip ahead two whole years. Yeah. At that point, David is released from the psychiatric institution by well, his parents on their recognizance, I guess. Yes, yes. Well, the, we, we do this little bit of showing that the psychiatric hospital is making him worse and actually yes. driving him crazy. Uh, and of course, 
I mean, I'm not crazy. I'm just in love. Being in here is making me crazy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Despite the fact that he hasn't been to therapy in four weeks per the guy in the white coat, still everybody signs off and is like, oh, yeah, he can go now. He's just in love. Well, it's the 80s. Psychiatric care wasn't the excellent and robust institution that it is today. (laughs) Couldn't even get through that. I'm Uh, sorry. It's okay. Um, And he's not supposed to have had any contact with the family or is not allowed to have any contact with the family. He's not allowed to have contact with the family or with Jade. Yeah, the rest of his life, I guess. At this point, we learn that Jade's parents have moved to New York and split up. David has a bundle of letters which he wrote to Jade in violation of the restraining order mm-hmm. against him while he was in the psychiatric hospital, but they were never sent. Right. Now he has them. What's the what's nurse guy like, to do? Gives it back. But hand deliver them. <laughs> it's worth noting, too, that one of the nurses in that sequence is Terry Shields, is Brooke Shields' mother. Uh, oh. In the, in yeah. the sequence in the psychiatric hospital. Well, yeah. now I hate her, but okay. Yeah. So David decamps to New York, somewhat against the advice of his father. His father gives him, in a, in a beautiful scene, Yeah. his father gives him very conflicting and weird advice. On the one hand, he says, you have to let these things go. I remember my first love. There's a bittersweet, haunted quality to this performance. I really love this performance. Yeah. But then at the same time, he says, yeah, I saw Jade one time when she was writing on your handlebars. But I'd never forget her. Wow, what a girl. You should go after her. Yeah. That's right. I do remember yeah. the conversation. So odd. Because he really only glimpsed her for seconds. It, that is like, that she's is the one, though, bud. Canon. She's the one. Her, That's his weird. parents never met Jade at all. His dad saw her across the street one time on, on David's bike. But, of course, we are, we are moved by the purity, Naturally. the power, the, the, the beauty and brilliance of their relationship. This so much love. of the film is the parents living vicariously through their children. Yes. Yeah, let's uh, let's get to that. As David goes to New York and goes to visit Anne oh in my a God, completely we're here. normal scene where nothing bad happens. Yes. Do you have all, that third slip of paper right there in front of you? <laughs> I do, but I don't know if this one's as much of a bummer. It's just weird. It is weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we get Anne's apartment, which is another great set piece. Like this is another beautiful location. Yeah, yeah. yeah great location, great apartment. Would move in today. Um, goes in to see Anne, who again he's. It's against the law for him to go and see her. Yes. But she's just very, oh, well, you always were one of the family. It's weird. It is. Invites him in immediately and then comes on to him, which yeah. I expected. And so it's almost a relief <laughs> to me as a viewer because I'm like, oh, I wasn't just reading into things. I like found she... it the opposite. Actually. Really? Yeah, because I had by this point reconciled myself to oh there's at the very most some subtextual thing happening here like there's there's a thematic thing but we're not actually going to cross this oh no there it goes <laughs> there it goes racing by that's the line we just crossed it yeah no you're right what do we make of Anne's commitment to this kind of obsessive pure passionate love do we see this as something that is virtuous does the film see this as something that is virtuous do we see this as something that is virtuous do we see it as something that's admirable uh do we understand her being so moved by this this vicarious vision of of true desire of of youthful purity too like it's it's also inextricable from their youth it's inextricable yeah. from but their then, perfect bodies and, and untarnished souls i mean i i think that argument starts to fall when she comes on to him mm-hmm. like if she had just even if she had told him the story which would have been weird like once i watched you having sex with my daughter and i thought wow i want that for myself like that's weird too oh, and that i thought of you when i was with my husband thought of you what, yeah which also is not shown in the film in the no. film she goes up and like sits in a chair and looks out at the moon or something yes. but <laughs> but then but after that apparently she wakes him up and is like baby let's go so she tells that story and yeah comes on to him and we assume that they're about to go for it when he says, oh, no, I just can never love anybody but Jade, which, yeah, she seems moved by. It's, I Thematically, it doesn't hold together for me. I don't know. Like, it's, it's a different movie. It's the movie I thought I was going to be watching, I but think, it's not this one. I think that there is a th- – you have to want it, but I think that there is a thread of, like, thematic continuity – as you move through there, the idea, I think you're right. If he had given in, if he had submitted to her seduction and they had had sex, then he would no longer be worthy of her idolation. She, he would no longer be worthy of, right. of all of this vicarious investment that she has. And certainly no longer worthy of Jade. Absolutely. Like you can't come back from right? that. <laughs> so there is that moment where you're right. To kind of circle back around to that discussion of, of envy and jealousy earlier in yeah. the film, there's nothing envious here, it seems to me. It's, it's she wants... But she doesn't want because Jade has it. Yeah, she just that's true. Wants. She just wants she it. wants her yeah. own version of this thing, and she's looking for it in the wrong person. Which is probably why it's so easy for her to 
to say, oh, you're right, I'll just go to bed instead well, of... And even as he refuses her, he is affirming his position as a moral good. He's affirming yeah. his position as someone who should be idolized the even way that she, she idolizes him. down their house. It's <laughs> so... Doesn't odd. matter. Yeah. He's still, he shows up to her apartment two years later in the same shirt that he was wearing the day that he was sent <laughs> down. Stupid shirt, yeah. We don't really get an analysis of this, but presumably this is the breaking point between Anne and Hugh. This is why they divorce is because he is angry about David burning down their house and Anne thinks he's a sweet boy who hasn't done anything wrong. Oh, God. Yeah, sure possible. So this is one of those moments where if you had that little tumbler of tequila right next to you, if you yeah. were prepared to take a shot when the film reached its craziest point, maybe you would take it. Maybe you would feel justified in taking that sure. when David burns mm -hmm. down the house. Maybe you would feel justified in taking it when Anne comes onto him in the way that she does. But no, we are not done because first he has to kill Jade's dad. <laughs> By accident. Well, we get this weird back and forth where when Anne leaves the room, he goes through her address book and finds out yes. that Jade is in Vermont now. In, Which uh, is so college. horrible. Yeah. yeah. And then goes to the bus station, is about to get on the bus to go to Vermont, chooses right. not to, instead just walks around New York for a little while, really leveraging the fact that we shot this film in New York. It yes. looks stunning. And New York in 81... It is a feel. It is a mood. It yeah. is a vibe, as the kids say. It is It is a strong <laughs> image right there on the screen. He then accidentally bumps into Hugh and Hugh's new girlfriend, Ingrid. Which is so unlikely. So preposterously unlikely. Yes. And then Elizabeth? Uh, yeah. And then Hugh is just kind of staring at him and takes a few steps out into traffic and is struck by, was it a taxi? Was it just a car? It doesn't really matter. Flies into the air. It's clearly going to be pronounced dead. I laughed out loud. I don't know if you it's did. It's impossible not to. It's impossible not to. It's so absurd. It comes out of nowhere. From these two people happen to bump into each other on the street, happen to see each other on the street, mm -hmm. to this guy who has been living in New York for two years just steps out into traffic. Maybe the big city is not for you, fella. <laughs> Maybe you need to go back to Chicago. I don't know. And then for David to rush over and stand over the body solely, solely so that Ingrid can identify him later. Yeah. The stuff with Anne, the stuff with the fire, even the stuff with David's parents in the psychiatric hospital and all of that, the, all of that intense complexity that we've moved through already in the film's second act, all of that is kind of fun. Yeah, it's, it's coaster. heightened and ridiculous. This is, this is trash. This is, this is bad. <laughs> this is bad this TV. This is outright. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It does kind of feel like a show that is about to get canceled, trying to wrap up all of its loose ends. <laughs> yes. In a writer's room that just does not care anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So David, of course, returns to Anne's apartment where partially the truth is revealed. He leaves and goes to this hotel room where... Really gross, seedy hotel. Yes. Yes. Jade comes to the hotel room, this awful, seedy hotel room, and in what is unarguably, I think, the worst scene in the film. Absolute nadir of the film. Absolute nadir. Mm -hmm. Like an unforgivably, yeah. film-breakingly bad scene. mad at it because yes. I kind of liked the crazy movie until now. Yes. This is where all the fun is drained out now of the film. all the fun is gone. Because Jade tells David that they are not together. They will not be together. Hey, you murdered my dad and burned down my house. This is probably not working for me. Probably not good. I've been reading Cosmo. There are some red flags here that I'm seeing. <laughs> I'm an empowered young woman. Brooke Shields, I will say, now that she is playing two years older, is even more luminous and assured and confident as, an, as a performer. Absolutely terrific in the scene. I think she's just a knockout. She is terrific in the scene. Yeah. Unfortunately, what happens in the film is that David assaults her. Yes. And for Forces a confession of love from her, literally which is, of course, pinning her to the bed beneath yes. him to force a confession of love, which she does and means. And the because film knows that she means. Romantic. And then they kiss romantically, and it's not fun anymore. And then James Spader beats the shit out of him, which he deserves. Yes, this he is when Keith back. shows up to the hotel room, says, yes. "Hey, you killed my dad. Also, you're violating your parole with my sister." Right. They have a huge fight. The cops show they up. Have a brawl. Yeah. And David is arrested. Which should be a happy ending. David should be arrested. Jade should seek therapy. And instead, our last scene, we in, have... In the sourest epilogue that we, I've ever seen in ever, a film. Ever. It's so terrible. We show Jade walking across the leaf-strewn lawn mm -hmm. up to the prison to visit her endless love. Yes. And the music swells, and the wind rises, and her hair flutters, and we freeze frame. And I think Franco Zeffirelli thinks it's romantic. I think he thinks it I is. I think he absolutely does. I mean, we are, we are witnessing the destruction of two lives. There's At no least. way that David is coming back from this. There's no way that Jade is going to have the life that she deserves after this. 
we can only speculate about what her relationship is going to be like with her mother, with her brothers. Her this... mother apparently is going to be fine with it. Her mother is going to roll out Thanksgiving dinner. <sighs> Keith is going to be cranky about it because he's masculine. I do feel that masculinity in general is posed as something that is violent and controlling in this film. Oh, which, that's interesting. You know Often it is. Masculinity is a little difficult to track, I think, in this film. If we are trying to separate masculinity from a certain, you know, paternalism, the way that we embody sure. it's true. maleness true. in this is, is through, is... like, superimposition and, and fatherhood, right, of sorts. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, no. D- David's dad, I think, stands in opposition to that reading that I gave. Right, so. but I don't think that that's intentional. <laughs> I, I think that what the film wants us to do is be moved by, but then I saw Jade on your bike, and you're right, son. You that's should do, true, uh, like, but the actor kind of underdelivers that part exactly, because he yeah. likes the other part better. Okay, maybe we just I like think, him. Richard Kiley was that his name? doing the like job him. there. Yeah. yeah. But it, it is curiously out of step with the rest of the film there. Wild. It's a bummer, you guys. It is a bummer. And it really does, like suck all of the you've listened to us now for over an hour talking about this film and it's hard not to be engaged and entertained and excited yeah. by the lunacy of the second act even the the sweetness and off kilter romanticism of that first act right it's not easy yeah. to settle into it's not easy to reconcile yourself to but there's a lot there to like the second act goes crazy that's wonderful but this is so bad this yeah. is so aggressively ill-tempered yes Yes. You've got one more piece of paper. I've got one more piece of paper. Yeah, let's let's lift our spirits. How good is the cinematography in this film? It (laughs) it is really good. Okay. Uh, It was shot by David Watkin, a British cinematographer who won an Academy Award for Out of Africa. Yes, which you watched just recently. And I loved it. I did watch it for the first time recently, and I loved it. Yeah. He also shot the 70s Oliver Reed, Raquel Welch, The Three Musketeers, which I haven't seen. You haven't seen that? No. Oh, uh-uh. we should watch that. We should. You love all the Musketeers, right? Uh, wow. I, I would never have said that of myself until this moment. I think you're right. I think I'm predisposed to like a Musketeers. Yeah. yeah you're right. Even the Zeppelin one? Oh, the With weird Stephen. No, I'm not so fond of that one. Yeah, I haven't and I seen don't, that one. I don't care for the candy bar either. <laughs> right before Endless Love, he shot Chariots of Fire. He shot Memphis Bell in 1990. Oh, a film I remember looking amazing. You said, I have seen Memphis Bell because I've not only been to the Memphis Bell, but like knew the two people who were basically the curators of the museum. Wow. Yeah. I am learning so much about you in yeah. this podcast. This Odd. is so weird. Odd. <laughs> uh, he worked with Zeffirelli on all three of Zeffirelli's post-Endless Love English language feature films. The 1990s Hamlet, which One I One of the worst films I've school. ever seen. Yeah. Genuinely terrible. And not just because of the Mel Gibson of it all, but genuinely terrible. I don't have memories of it except, again, watching it in school and napping through it, basically. <laughs> sure. um, 1996's Jane Eyre, which of course I've seen. I've previously sure. podcasted on the 1996 Jane Eyre. Uh, and 1999's T with Mussolini. So that's a sweet little cinematography note to conclude our discussion. It is. The way they shoot that house in particular, we didn't spend time on this when we were talking about uh, Anne on the staircase, but the way he uses that staircase and the architecture of the house to frame shots yeah. is extraordinary. It's so, so beautiful. And really especially, yes, done. you're right, the verticality of that house. Mm-hmm. We get so many shots of the stairwell from the stairwell to the stairwell. Yes. It's yeah. gorgeous. And it also, like, sometimes it's hard to tell which landing someone yeah. is on and how many floors the house actually has. It's really quite lovely. This is what you get Magical even. when you shoot in a real space. This yes. is the, you know, necessity breeds creativity argument, I think. Mm. Go into a real space and make it look beautiful. You're going to find solutions that you would never come up with if you are conceptualizing an architected space yeah. inside of a 3D modeling program in your computer. You Absolutely. Know, and, and shooting everything against a green screen. This is... Yeah, vibrant, vibrant cinematography. Mm -hmm. Really, I think you can't take that away from this film, even though the ending is so disappointing. That's Endless Love. We did it. We did it. We made it through. Fantastic. Normally, at this point in the podcast, we are going to put the film on our big list of Tom Cruise films so that we get a ranked, tiered list by the end of this podcast project. Right now, there's nothing on it. So, uh, hey, Endless Love, number one. Tom Cruise's best film, unarguably. (laughs) There it is. I feel like it's not going to stay at number one on that list for very long. won't stay there for long. Let's hope. The Last Star in Hollywood is supported by you, our wonderful listeners. You can head on over to laststarpod.com, our website, or you can go directly to patreon.com slash laststarpod by signing up to support us on Patreon. Not only do you make it possible for us to produce this show and perhaps, who knows, even produce future shows in years to come, but you get access to a monthly special bonus episode on a tangential film. What's going to happen is, at the end of October, we're going to put up a poll of four films 
that are connected somehow to the first four Tom Cruise movies. We're kind of negotiating how we want yeah. to lay that out. And then you, our patrons, are going to be able to vote on which one we cover. That will be a full-length bonus episode over there. You can also get access to our Discord server. You can also ask us questions. We would love to do some listener questions here at the end of the podcast every yeah. week. So all of that and so much more available over <laughs> on patreon.com slash Pod. That's going to do it for Endless Love next week. Also from 1981, the movie Taps, directed by Harold Becker. It is available on all the major streaming platforms. It is not available for free anywhere, so you will probably have to go and drop a couple bucks on a rental. I've never seen Taps, have you? I have never seen it. I also didn't realize it was also 81. That's such an exciting year for Tom it's Cruise. so fast. I We're going feel to see this. like happy for him in that year. He <laughs> must have been thrilled. You can also, I should say, head on over to our website at laststarpod.com and find the link there to our schedule. You're going to see all of the films that we're going to be discussing Ooh. as we move forward over what is, you know, roughly a year's worth of podcasting. So exciting. Thanks so much for listening to this first episode of The Last Star in Hollywood. I've been Alistair Stevens. I'm Elizabeth Ray, and we'll see you next week. 